We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to discover who Jesus really was, what he really said, and what he really did. We're going through Jesus' whole life in chronological order because it's our goal to know him and his word for ourselves firsthand. We don't want to hear about it from someone else. We want to know him for ourselves. And last week, we saw Jesus offend this crowd of people by claiming to be equal with God the Father. Jesus claimed to have come directly from heaven, and they were also offended by his claim that those who followed him had to receive him into their whole life. Where we left off, the crowd had left Jesus and really only his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles remained. And that's where we're going to pick up our study today. This week, we're going to learn about the kind of worship and prayer that moves the heart of God. I'm sure many of you have wondered, how can I pray? How can I worship in such a way that it really connects with the Lord and stirs his heart? We're going to talk about that this morning. We're also going to learn about the danger and powerlessness of religious traditions. As we get into the text, there's one quick verse from the Gospel of John that I want to read to you. You don't need to flip there. It just helps us transition into our story today. It says, after these things, after dealing with the crowd, Jesus walked, he continued to minister and hang out in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. The Jewish religious leaders in southern Israel, in Judea, around Jerusalem, wanted to kill Jesus. So Jesus decided that instead of going back south toward Jerusalem, he would stay in northern Israel in the region of Galilee until things calmed down a little bit. Seems like a good decision. Let's pick up our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin in verse 1. It says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem... So let's talk about who these guys are. They were a, a theological hit squad coming up from the main temple in Jerusalem. If Jesus had gone down to southern Israel, they would have arrested him. People were mad at him there, and they probably would have done everything they could to get him killed. In northern Israel, the people were still kind of on Jesus' side, kind of not, but there wasn't the popular opinion enough against Jesus for them to arrest him and kill him. So these guys were sent up to northern Israel to try and stir up trouble against Jesus, to try and turn the crowds, the people, against Jesus so that they could hopefully arrest him and then have him killed. And we're going to see their first attempt to do that right here. It says, they came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Why do they break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Let's explain this a little bit. In Jewish culture at this time, the understanding of God's laws came from two sources. You're probably familiar with the first source. It's simply the Old Testament scriptures, especially the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were considered especially important because those were the books of the law and they were authored by Moses. But in addition to the scriptures... 
There were many other laws that were not written down, but were passed down orally from Moses to his elders who passed it on to their children, who passed it on to their children, and so forth. At least that was the story. We're going to find out that there's really no way that that could be true. The earliest that we can date the oral traditions, these oral laws that they believed in back to, is the time known as the Babylonian captivity, the time when Daniel was in the lion's den in Babylon and you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to the statue and ending up in the fire where they're rescued by God. All of those things took place in Babylon during the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. And there's no record of any of these oral laws Laws existing before that. But their belief was that these oral laws were true and they went all the way back to Moses. They were given to Moses directly by the Lord himself. And tragically, they had begun to believe that these oral traditions were actually more important than God's written word. All of these oral traditions would be codified, they would be published and put together in a book called the Mishnah right around 200 AD. At this time, they hadn't put the Mishnah together, but all of the oral traditions existed at this time. And one of the oral traditions in the Mishnah says that it is worse to contradict the teaching of the rabbis than to contradict the scriptures themselves. That's crazy. They believed that man's opinion was more important than the word of God. Thank God we no longer live in a time where any church leaders would ever teach that their opinion is more sacred than the scriptures. As you read God's word, and as you see the way Jesus deals with these oral traditions, it'll become evident and obvious that Jesus doesn't believe in these oral traditions. And he would know, being that he's God. Everything that Jesus wanted us to know and understand, he made sure was recorded in his word, in the scriptures. And one of the reasons God chose to do it that way was so that men, so that you and I and people throughout history couldn't add our own thoughts, opinions, and traditions to the scriptures. God wanted the scriptures to be closed so that they couldn't be modified and changed based on our ideas. It's the word of God, not the word of man. The idea that God gave these bonus laws to Moses doesn't really hold water. It's simply not true. And that's the real danger of non-biblical traditions. Over time, people forget that they're just traditions. People become so attached to them that they begin to treat them as equal or more important than what the Bible even says. And that's why here at New Hope, we hold fast and true as much as we can to the best of our ability to God's word as our standard in all things. Whenever we have an opinion or a disagreement about anything, we need to say what does the word say? We need to have our discussions and form our opinions around what the word of God says because we're all equal under the word of God. It's the authority over all of us. You know, we're doing some traditional Advent things this year and we did our first one in this morning service because we enjoy them. They're a positive tradition. I love it. But you know that there's nothing about any of the Advent traditions in the scriptures? There's no record of the early church celebrating Advent or even Christmas. The scriptures say we should actually only celebrate the death of Christ because it gained us eternal life. So while we should enjoy Advent, 
We need to be careful that we don't elevate it to the level of Scripture. And I know some of you are out there thinking, but, but even baby Jesus enjoyed opening his Advent calendar. Can't you just picture him as a little two-year-old opening the windows in that Advent calendar? It didn't happen. It's not in the Scriptures. It's a tradition. It's a wonderful tradition. But it's not Scripture, and we need to remember that. What these religious leaders were specifically objecting to was the lack of ceremonial washing by Jesus' disciples. They weren't playing hygiene police. This was about ritual. This was about an oral tradition they had come up with. There used to be specific washing instructions that were given to the priests who had served in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. Those instructions were legit and they came from God. They're in the Bible. They were designed to be a picture of how holy and pure and perfect God is. You would have to wash yourself carefully because you were going into the presence of this holy and pure God. But at some point, someone decided that, you know what? Not only the priests should do that, everybody should do that before they eat. And their oral tradition said that there should be ceremonial washings, not only before a meal, but as a bonus, if you were really spiritual, throughout the meal, between every course. And so what you would do is you would take one and a half eggshells, exactly worth of water, and someone would pour them over your hands while you you held them open like this, facing up toward heaven. And then as the water dripped down and reached your wrists, you would turn them to face down so that the water would drip down. And then you would turn your left hand into a fist and scrub it into your right palm and turn your right hand into a fist and scrub it into your left palm. And this was an exact special ritual. And the problem was that this system of oral laws created a ladder of spirituality based on external actions that the Bible never intended to exist. People would see you going through the rituals between every course and be like, oh man, that guy is so spiritual. Look at that. He's got his his own wooden eggshell water measure that he has with him at all times. I mean, this guy is, he's up there. He walks with God. And that's something God never wanted to happen. God never wanted meaningless traditions to be the evidence of our spirituality. He never wanted meaningless traditions to be the evidence of, of our spirituality. And if we're not careful, we can fall into exactly the same pattern of ridiculous behavior because what happens, and has happened countless times in church history and denominational history, is that a person gets a conviction about something that's not in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that God puts a conviction on their heart for something that he hasn't put on everybody's hearts. And that's okay. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does that. And there's different callings on different people's lives. But what's not okay is when that person then says, everybody else needs to do that too. Everybody else needs to have the same conviction that I have, even though it's not in the Bible. The Holy Spirit gave me this conviction, so you all need to have the same conviction. And then that person and those people begin to judge everyone who doesn't do the thing that one person had a conviction about. That's not even in the Bible. I'll give one really, really easy, obvious example. In the southern United States, during the Great Depression era, there was a massive problem with pastors in the South becoming alcoholics. I guess they just went to one too many committee meetings and they just sort of snapped. But uh, in reality, this was a a serious, serious problem. There was a lot of spousal abuse going on, just a lot of pastors not 
representing Jesus in any right way. And so in that atmosphere, a few pastors begin to say, we're going to completely abstain from alcohol. And in that environment, it's probably the right thing to do. It's the right decision. And so suddenly that spreads to their staff, and they say, no one on our staff at this church is ever going to drink alcohol because it's just out of control where we live right now. Probably the right decision. So time goes by, and that spreads up the chain of command. Suddenly it becomes a denomination-wide thing. Suddenly it becomes almost a Christian-wide thing. Well, almost a hundred years later now, that is still the main sin of concern in most denominations with pastors. Even though none of us would say, what are we going to do about the rampant problem of alcoholic pastors plaguing the Tri-Cities? I mean, this is out of control. It's happening all the time. Drunk pastors throwing bottles at cars on the high. It's not, it's not happening. It's not happening. That I, that I know of. Maybe you've seen some things I haven't. But So what happened now is we got to the place where everybody forgot that the Bible doesn't actually outlaw drinking alcohol. And everybody forgot that the first miracle Jesus did was making the best wine people had ever had, and apparently a lot of it. Even when we came here to plant the church, we were working through one missions organization trying to get funding, and they only had two disqualifying questions. These were the first two things. Like, you don't even need to write your name if you're answering yes to either of these two questions. And you're thinking, what are, what are the two questions? Did you murder someone? Like, that would be a good question, you know? Are you intending to start the entire church as a fraud to get rich? No, that's not the question. The questions are, do you have a private prayer language? Do you pray in tongues? And do you drink or have you drunk alcohol in the last two years? Not, are you cheating on your wife? <laughs> Did you have a beer in the past two years? This is what we need to be concerned about. Immediate disqualification. Even though John the Baptist came as a man who didn't drink, the Bible says, and Jesus says they called him crazy, then Jesus said that of himself, he said, I came eating and drinking, and you call me a drunkard. Jesus had the reputation among some people as a drunkard simply because he drank, because he wasn't an abstainer like John the Baptist was. And so even today, you'll say to many churches, well, do you guys believe that the Bible teaches that it's wrong to drink? And they'll say, oh, no, 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 we don't believe that. You just can't be a pastor in our denomination if you do that. And it's a tradition that really doesn't have a place anymore in the modern church. What the Bible says about alcohols, it says, be mastered by nothing. So be addicted to nothing. Don't be dominated or controlled by anything. Be in moderation with everything. That's what the Bible says. That's the standard that should be pushing. The sad truth is that internet pornography is a far bigger issue among Christian men than alcoholism is. Far bigger issue. But because of tradition, the focus remains on a sin that doesn't really have a lot of power over most Christian leaders at this time. Simply because of tradition. And then we'll go a step further. The Christian leaders who want to hold to that will sometimes say, well, you know, it's a problem that it's not in the Bible, so let's make it be in the Bible. Maybe you've heard this, and they will actually say, no, no, it wasn't wine Jesus was drinking, it was grape juice. It was grape juice. Even though there's no way you could get that out the text, and I've never known anyone to ever be accused of being a drunkard for consuming grape juice. The text simply doesn't support it. But what you will find is that if you torture the text long enough, it'll confess to anything. And that's what they do. So instead of letting the Word of God change their traditions, they cling to their traditions and modify the Word of God. 
That's still happening today in several different areas. That's just one example. There's many, many examples in almost every mainline denomination. Our quirks, which are held as high as Scripture is. And this is just what was going on back then, too. Tradition is a powerful, powerful force. And let me just say this to balance this out. I always want to say this when I mention alcohol. If you've had any type of addiction issues with alcohol, you can't drink any alcohol ever. You've just got to be honest with yourself. You've got to be honest with yourself about your weakness. You have your weaknesses. I have mine. We all have our own. So this is not saying now that because Pastor Jeff shared this, you're going to go out and drink now. Don't do that. Some of you can't do that. And also, if you're single, just a word of advice, don't ever mix drinking and dating. Don't do it. Because every guy knows, while candy is dandy, liquor is quicker. That's why we bottle our own wine at my house. So back to our story. Back to our story. Back to our story. So these, uh, these Pharisees are upset that Jesus' disciples are violating the tradition of their elders. They're upset that they're violating the oral law. Not the law of the scriptures, but the oral law. Verse 3, it says, He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? This is Jesus firing back at them. For God commanded, I want you to underline, God commanded. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, and then underline you say, this is the contrast. Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God then he need not honor his father or mother. Let me explain what's going on. There was an oral tradition at that time that taught that you could take anything you owned, any possession of yours, house, property, money, anything, and dedicate it to the Lord, consecrate it to God as a gift to God by simply looking at it and saying, Korban, Korban. That sofa, Korban, dedicated to God. And if something had been Korbaned, what it meant is that you could continue to use it and enjoy it, but nobody else could. And you couldn't give it away to them because it had been consecrated to the Lord. It had been given to God. So these are a bunch of guys who don't want to take care of their moms and dads as their moms and dads age. The Old Testament laws from God are very clear about family, that you honor your elders, you honor your mother and father. Jesus says it's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. But to get around that, you guys came up with this Corban system so that when mom and dad come and say, son, we've fallen on hard times, your dad's health has declined, he can't work anymore, can you take us in? They could say, oh, you know, mom, I'd, I'd love to, but the spare bedroom is Corban. I can't, I can't help you. Can you lend us some food or some money, son? You know, I'm so sorry. I just made my bank account Corban just yesterday. I'm so sorry. And so they wouldn't have to give anything to their parents or anybody else based on this oral tradition they came up with. And Jesus just shreds them on this. The fifth commandment says this. It says, it's on your outlines, honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving to you. So under the Old Testament law, taking care of your mother and father was the godly thing to do. They came up with an oral tradition that was in direct contradiction to what the Word of God says. Begging the question from just a logical perspective, is God going to engrave the fifth commandment on a tablet of stone and then give Moses, whisper in his ear, an oral law that completely contradicts it? Of course not. 
Of course not. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. That's why he says this in verse 6. Thus, and then underline, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. You've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Jesus pointed out that the scribes and Pharisees were choosing to disobey God's word in order to keep their traditions. That's your first fill-in. Jesus pointed out that the scribes and Pharisees were choosing to disobey God's word in order to keep their traditions. When push came to shove, they would rather offend God than offend their traditions. They chose to offend the word of God instead of their own traditions. Jesus goes on to say, you're so concerned with the tradition of your elders, your forefathers. Let's talk about what the Lord said about them during their lifetime. Jesus continues, as always, careful to not offend, always building bridges with people. Verse 7, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, their elders, saying to them, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. And then underline, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines, teaching as scripture, the commands of men rather than the commands of God. Write this down. The Jewish leadership was teaching man's opinions as God's word. The Jewish leadership was teaching man's opinions as God's word. Word. This is a serious, serious offense. Jesus was saying, you say all the right things about loving God, and you work hard to look like you're all together on the outside, like you're really holy and godly on the outside, but on the inside, you don't even know me. We have no relationship, and you have no relationship with my Father. Jesus is saying, there's no point you even worshiping me, because you're teaching people that what men have said is scripture. I'm not listening to you when you worship because you're lying to people and you're using my name to do it. Jesus said, there's no point you even worshiping me. I don't want it. Verse 10, when he had called the multitude to himself, Jesus called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Are you picturing the awkwardness here? So he's just called these Pharisees and scribes hypocrites. And then Jesus is like, oh, you think we're having a quiet little discreet conversation about this? We're not doing that. Everybody gather around. Everybody come here. Listen to what I'm going to say. Then he says, verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came to him. So the idea is everybody is left after this. The crowd goes home. All right, and they sort of wander off, and then Jesus' disciples come to him and say, "Uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? It's not recorded, but I really think Jesus probably responded, you think? I've noticed that when I completely destroy their false religion in front of a crowd, this often bothers them, but thanks for sharing the information, guys. Good to know, but there's no record of that. Verse 13, but he answered, Jesus answered them and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Remember what Jesus has been saying for the past few weeks in our studies, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is just telling his disciples that while these religious leaders might look together on the outside, 
God the Father doesn't know them at all. And God the Father is not drawing them to Jesus because of their hard hearts. So Jesus tells his disciples again, don't chase after them, don't debate them, don't try and change their minds. Their hard hearts have convinced them that they're right. They're blind men leading other blind men. And the story ends with both them and their followers falling. Now notice this. This cracks me up. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying to the crowd at all. When he says, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. But instead of asking him in front of all the people, they just sort of stand there quietly, maybe going, hmm, it's deep. Hmm. They have no idea what Jesus is talking about. So when they're alone, they try to get Jesus to explain this without admitting that they don't understand. And that's why they say to Jesus, do you know that uh, the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Which is kind of like saying, yeah, I have this friend, Jesus, Brian, who was just here, and he, uh, he said he didn't understand what you meant, and uh, he asked me if you would explain it so that I could tell him the explanation. I mean, I understand, but Brian, Brian doesn't understand. But Jesus isn't taking the bait, so they're sort of left with no choice, which is why in verse 15 it says, then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. And they don't even understand this isn't a parable. It's not a parable. It's just a direct spiritual truth. And why are they finding this so hard to get? Why is this so hard to grasp? Because what Jesus is saying, if he's being literal, which he is, is completely revolutionary and controversial to the disciples as Jews in saying not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Jesus just cast aside the entire mosaic, the entire law of Moses system of clean and unclean foods. He just dismissed it with just one comment. The whole kosher system, yet Jesus just abolished it right there. He does it right here. He says that there's nothing you can take into your mouth that defiles you. There's no food you can eat that's going to defile you. He just swept it away in one go. And this is one of the defining characteristics of Jews then and today, the kosher food system. So heads are spinning and they're thinking, man, if he literally means what he's saying, that would be crazy. So Jesus says, verse 16, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Jesus uses a very graphic analogy to make the point that, yes, I am being literal. If you don't understand what Jesus means by eliminated, it'll make sense the next time you need to spend an extended amount of time in the restroom. There will be an elimination. God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray. So, and uh, Verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Underline that. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. The Greek there means evil reasoning within oneself. Murders, adulteries, fornications. I just want to point out that the Greek word there for fornications is pornea, where we get our word pornography from. It includes a whole bunch of sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage, same-sex intercourse, incest, pornography, bestiality, everything that's outside of God's plan for sex thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Profound insight from Jesus. And it harkens back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus absolutely hammers repeatedly the point that external behaviors 
are always rooted in internal attitudes in the heart. Most of the Sermon on the Mount is about that one point that you shouldn't be concerned with your external behaviors. You should be concerned with the attitudes of the heart that manifest in those external behaviors. The heart drives our behavior. Write this down. The internal condition of our heart determines our external behaviors. The internal condition of our heart determines our external behaviors. Everything we do on the outside is driven by things that develop on the inside, in the heart. That's why Jesus says, guys, everything you take into your mouth will eventually find its way out of your body. It's just passing through. But the things that come out of your mouth, your speech, those things are dictated by what's going on in your heart. The same attitudes that cause you to speak evil will cause you to do evil if they're given the opportunity to develop. It's not what goes into your mouth that you should be concerned about, but what goes into your heart because the heart drives the things that come out of your mouth and out of your life. Be concerned with your own heart. Two quick things I need to share on this. One, Jesus is speaking spiritually, not medically, okay? Not medically. I don't want to come visit you in the hospital in five years because you've had cheeseburgers for breakfast every day. And you said, Pastor Jeff, I don't understand. Jesus said, it's not what goes into my mouth that defiles me, but now I'm 450 pounds and I'm dying of a heart attack. Is the word of God not true? Jesus is speaking spiritually. He's not speaking medically. Those cheeseburgers aren't going to damage your relationship with Jesus. They're not going to cause you to lose your salvation. You may get to see Jesus sooner, but Jesus is speaking spiritually. There's a great verse for issues like this written by the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living. I like the way it says it. Paul writes, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. There's freedom in Jesus. But not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. Paul is saying maturity in the faith is not asking what can I get away with. It's learning to ask what's beneficial so there are things you can do that are not sins, but are not beneficial. Cheeseburgers for breakfast every day, not a sin. Not beneficial, not beneficial. Not everything you're free to do is good for you. Secondly, according to Jesus, alcohol doesn't contaminate you spiritually. Smoking does not contaminate you spiritually. Hang with me here on this journey, okay? I think you could go as extreme as to say that taking in narcotics is not what harms you spiritually. Hang with me. However, while taking in those things may not contaminate you spiritually, they may cause things to come out of you that will contaminate you spiritually. Understanding that reality and understanding the health implications of our decisions are key to living with wisdom and discernment when it comes to figuring out what freedoms you should not could, what freedoms you should and should not enjoy. I enjoy a glass or glasses of wine, but I'm not going to get wasted at the family Christmas party. Why? Because if I take in too much, that's a sin? No, no, no. Because taking in too much may cause things to come out of me that are contaminated, that are destructive, that are sinful. That's wisdom. That's wisdom, understanding the consequences of what goes in. It's not what goes in that's a sin, but there are things you can take in that will produce sin out of your life and enslave you. The reason I won't go home and do heroin today 
is because I shouldn't be mastered by anything, according to the Bible. And when I'm addicted to something, it becomes my master. It owns me. It dominates me. And my life will become destructive and sinful. Those things will come out of me. Doing that wouldn't send me to hell, but it might kill me here on the earth. It'll certainly make me ineffective for Jesus, and it would definitely lead me to sin. Definitely. That's why Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to focus on the attitudes of the heart. You've got to focus on the attitude of the heart. You know, even if you end up addicted to something because you have deep anger issues of bitterness because you haven't forgiven someone, you might stop one addiction and just pick up another. The issue is the heart. What's going on in the heart? You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. So strong is the power of tradition that despite this explanation, did you notice Peter was the one who asked Jesus to explain it? It's interesting because despite getting an explanation from Jesus himself, Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't get this clean, unclean food thing. How do we know that? Because years later, in a city called Joppa, Peter is on a rooftop praying. God has to send him a vision. Many of you know the story. He sees the sheet coming down from heaven, and there's all these animals that are unclean under Jewish law in there. And God says, slay and eat. Have a barbie, Peter. Go for it. Go for it. Let's fire up the grill. Let's enjoy some good food here. Peter, when God comes to him in a vision, his first response when that happens is Peter says, never, Lord. Never, Lord. It happens three times, and finally Peter says, okay, 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 I get it, I get it. That's how much it took for Peter to discover the blessing of bacon. That's, and here's, here's the amazing thing. I just picture Peter eating this stuff going, wow, and God's like, I know, right? It's amazing, it's amazing. <laughs> Peter, years later, though, he backslides on the exact same issue. He's in the city of Antioch. There's a bunch of believers there, and they've had some high-level councils, and they've come to the conclusion, you know what? You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Every time I make this point, I always picture that they have the Sunday service where they make this announcement, like, we've realized, we've looked at God's word. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian anymore, that there's the one guy who's there in the back row with, like, a frozen bag of peas on his lap, and he's going, come on! Like, <laughs> You couldn't do this yesterday? I just, in, in my head, that's exactly how that went down. The good news, everybody, we've just realized you, you don't need to do that anymore. It's like, seriously? Peter gets this, and he's leading the church, and he's eating with these Gentile Christians who aren't Jews because he understands this. And then this group of guys roll into town, and these guys are legalists. They're Judaizers, and they're saying, no, 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 no. You, you've got to be circumcised. And all of a sudden, because of that peer pressure from his fellow Jews, Peter stops eating and hanging out even with these Gentile Christians. It's recorded that the apostle Paul has to show up in Antioch, and Paul writes, I confronted Peter to his face. Paul gets up in Peter's face and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're full of it. You're being a hypocrite. And Peter repents, and he changes. But that's just a small, small example of the power of tradition, the grip that tradition can have on a person's life, even one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Tradition is a powerful, powerful force. What's interesting is that the Gospel of Mark, you may or may not know this, was actually a collaboration 
between one of the other disciples, not one of the 12, he's probably one of the 70, named John, Mark, and Peter. The gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel. All of the experiences, all the stories are actually dictated from Peter to another disciple named John, Mark. John, Mark writes them down, and then he shapes the text to target it towards a Roman audience. Mark is directed to the Romans, but it's all Peter's experiences. And this account, this story we're reading right now, it's interesting how it appears in uh, the Gospel of Mark. It says, So he said to them, Jesus said, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. Peter is recounting what Jesus has said. John Mark is writing it down. And then you sort of imagine, then Peter goes, and he finishes the sentence, and he remembers that Jesus said, thus purifying all foods, all foods. You imagine Peter going, huh, man, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble if I had just been willing to receive that all the way back then when Jesus said it the first time. Traditions are very, very powerful. We're going to shift gears and keep going into verse 21. It says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Very interesting. This is the only time in the scriptures Jesus actually goes and ministers outside of Israel. Tyre and Sidon are about 40 miles north of the region of Galilee, straight up the coast. And it's where modern-day Lebanon is right now. The regions of Tyre and Sidon are still there. So he's on the coast of Lebanon, and he's really trying to get just a little R&R. People are out to kill him, so he's going to take a little time off, just try and recover. He's there with his disciples, have some quality time with them, but, but word quickly spreads that Jesus is there. Verse 22, and behold, a woman of Canaan. And Matthew's gospel tells us this woman was a Greek Syrophoenician by birth. So she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Even worse than that, she's a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the people who were living in the promised land, Israel, before Israel came into Israel. They were a desperately wicked people at that time, so desperate that God commanded the people of Israel to completely wipe them out. They were so depraved, so corrupt, so beyond help and repair. But the nation of Israel ignores God's instructions. And here we find Jesus interacting with a Canaanite descendant hundreds and hundreds of years later. So she's a woman, she's a Canaanite. The disciples would have looked down on her with extreme prejudice. A woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. The Greek verb for cried out there is continual. So it means she was going on and on crying out to Jesus. And I want us to notice how she addresses Jesus. What's the title she uses? She says, Son of David. Son of David. Son of David was a term that Jews used for the Messiah. They believed when the Messiah came, and rightfully so, they believed that according to Old Testament scriptures, he would be in the family line of King David. So Son of David was a messianic title, but this woman's not a Jew. She's not a Jew. She's not being herself when she uses the title Son of David. She doesn't grasp the significance. But what it means is she's rehearsed this. She's practiced this. She's thought about, how can, I, how can I get his attention? Oh, they call him son of David, and he seems to respond to that. So I'll do that. She's trying to get the ritual down just right. She's saying, what are the right words? What's the right tone? You can imagine her almost in front of a mirror. Mirror going, son of, <clears throat> son of, 
son of Dave, son of David. She's practicing it. She's trying to get it down just right. And she says, maybe if I use this title, he'll grant my request. So write this down. She's hoping that the right ritual will cause Jesus to answer her request. She's hoping the right ritual will cause Jesus to answer her request. We just had a lesson in the powerlessness of tradition in the scriptures we read before this. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Have you ever desperately needed the help of Jesus? you ever find yourself in a situation where he's your only hope? Maybe that's where you are right now. In those situations, we can drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out the formula to make God answer our prayer. There's an infinite number of opinions and teachings and books out there that tout rituals and procedures to get your prayers answered. Whatever you're doing, there's a book that will tell you you're doing it wrong and you should be doing it some other way. You need to pray every hour on the hour. No, no, no. You need to write it down and pray it on a piece of paper. Carry that piece of paper around with you. You need to go pray outdoors in nature. Jesus is super into nature. You 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 need to learn how to pray in Hebrew. Pray in Hebrew extra spiritual. You should, you should actually be praying in song. Sing your prayers to the Lord. He loves a joyful heart. Pray the names of God. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen. King James English, dude. God always, always moves where King James English is spoken. Hearest me, thou great and mighty God. The lamentation of thou child riseth before ye. God's like, oh, that's good. I mean, I, I gotta go do this thing. You can drive yourself crazy with doubt by asking yourself, what am I missing? What am I doing wrong? What's the missing ingredient? What's the formula? If you've ever been there, if you're there right now, I want you to pay attention as our story progresses and we see how Jesus responds to this woman, approaching him using a tradition that's not hers, doing her best to play the part, but not being real, not being true to herself, not being authentic. Obviously, this is a serious situation. And if there was ever a situation where you would think Jesus would want to do something, it would be this. Gentile, woman, demon-possessed little girl. You're like, this is an easy one, Jesus. You just need to do this. But Jesus' response seems incredibly cold at first. Verse 23, but he answered her, not a word. Here come the compassionate disciples. They came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. Compassionate, right? Jesus, he's just he's whining and whining about her demon-possessed girl. Oh, please, we're just trying to enjoy some good food here. The disciples at this point, this is just an interesting side observation. The disciples are still racist at this point. You picking up on that? They're disciples of Jesus. They're still racist against her because she's a Gentile. They're sexist as well because she's a woman. They don't want anything to do with her. Verse 24, but Jesus answered the disciples. He's still just ignoring her. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's talking to his disciples, but he's saying it loud enough for the woman to overhear. And Jesus is just saying what we've heard him share before, that he came first to share the gospel with the Jews. They had been prepared by the scriptures. They knew the over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. They were the low-hanging fruit. They should have been easy converts. So Jesus came to them first because they had been prepared by the scriptures to receive him. And then us, the Gentiles, second. And Jesus is doing all of this for a reason. There's something in this woman's spirit that Jesus wants to bring out of her. Her traditional approach, son of David, has not worked. Hasn't worked. 
So notice what she does next. Verse 25. Then she came and, and then underline, worshipped him, saying, underline, Lord, help me. Help me. All pretenses are suddenly gone. She doesn't have any rituals to fall back on. She just comes to Jesus in raw honesty now and says, you got to help me. Help me. And that's not the only thing she does. As she's doing that, she approaches Jesus in worship. It says she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Write this on your outlines. Worship and honesty move the heart of God. Worship and honesty move the heart of God. He hears. He leans in. He inclines his ear toward us. He draws near. When we worship in a spirit of honesty, it doesn't move the heart of God when we're needy, but we're completely unwilling to do anything that might be perceived as being needy. He doesn't respond to that. He responds to people who are raw and honest and come to him in worship saying, I need your help. I can't fix this. I need your help. So we should never be surprised when we keep it all together in our prayer life and in front of people and in worship, in our walk with Jesus, careful to make sure that we're not sending any signals that we might be in crisis or need help. And then say, God, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you moving? And the reality is, man, because we care more about looking like we've got it all together than actually having God put us all together. This woman lets that all go. And the heart of Jesus is moved. And she's appealing for help entirely on the basis of his goodness, his grace. She doesn't say, Jesus, I'm a good person. I do lots of community service. She's not listing all the good things she's done in her life or making a case for why she deserves help. She's just worshiping Jesus and saying, your God, would you please help me? Would you help me? In the Psalms, it says the sacrifices of God. So the sacrifices God really wants are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. We know that in Hebrews it says, without faith it is impossible to please him. We know that, but what's the rest of the verse? For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He is God. But not only that, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In verse 26 it says, but Jesus answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dog's. You're like, Jesus, you are so mean. Let's break this down a little bit. The Greek word for dog there that's used is actually the term used for household pets. It's not the term used for scavenging stray dogs for mutts. It's the term used for a household pet that you love, like a puppy. So what Jesus is saying is more like, you know, it's not right for the puppies to get fed before the children in the house have been fed. And in this statement, Jesus is actually hinting to the woman that there may be hope for her because in what Jesus had just said back to her, she's in the house. She's in the house. She's part of the family. She's just not eating at the table yet. So what does she do with the sliver of hope? Well, she grabs onto it with both hands, which is exactly what Jesus wanted her to do. Verse 27, and she said, yes, Lord, 
Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And what's Jesus trying to bring out of this woman's spirit? He's trying to bring out remarkable, miracle-working faith. He wasn't trying to discourage her. He's not trying to dismiss her. He's not trying to disrespect her. What Jesus wants to do is pull this great faith out of her. And what she has just done in approaching Jesus with his own words, did you notice that? She takes what Jesus says and turns it right around back at him. What she's just done is the same thing that Jesus wants us to do with his word. When we pray the scriptures, when we pray the promises of God, we are doing the same thing that this woman is doing. When we say, Jesus, your word says, you'll never leave me, you'll never forsake me. When you say, you light my path, you guide my steps, Jesus, your word says that. If this woman was praying for someone she loved to know Christ, she wouldn't say, Lord, I know that every person must make up their own mind about following you. So if it's in your plan and in your will, and if it's their destiny, no, she would have just prayed, Lord, in your word, you said it's the will of the Father that none should perish. So Father, draw my friend to you. That's how this woman would have prayed. Write this down. Jesus loves to remind us of who he is by having us remind him of who he is. He loves that. He hasn't forgotten anything he's written in his word. But what happens when we pray the scriptures to God, when we say the promises of God out loud, it reminds us of what's in the word of God. Just as Jesus wanted to draw faith out of this woman, Jesus wants to draw faith out of us. He loves to remind us of who he is by having us remind him of who he is. Her response to Jesus was, all I need is a crumb. All I need is a crumb. Just a little bit of you. That's enough. That's all I need. It'll be enough. And I love this moment because this is the moment where Jesus isn't even looking at her. But she says this, and you know that this involuntary smile just comes across the face of Jesus because of the way this woman answers. It's an incredible moment. He turns to the woman, verse 29. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. That woman received the miracle she asked for. And, and through that encounter with Jesus, she graduated to the next level of faith. Do you think the next time that woman is going through difficulty and her prayers aren't being answered, she's going to quit? She's not going to quit. Because she's learned the lesson of persistence and faith from Jesus. And it's a lesson we need to learn as well. This woman's nationality and her gender were working against her. Satan was against her. He had taken control of her daughter. The disciples were against her because of her prejudices. And at first it seems like even Jesus is against her. But instead of giving up, she persisted in faith. And Jesus moved mightily in her life. Going back to the first part of the story, you know, without Jesus, our hearts are broken beyond repair. That's what the prophet Jeremiah realized when he wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The apostle Paul said this, he said, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. 
There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. You know that nowhere in the Bible does it talk about God repairing our hearts. All the laws in the Torah couldn't fix our hearts. The oral laws couldn't fix our hearts. All the religious traditions of the church can't fix our hearts. The solution, according to the word of God, is him giving us a new heart. A new heart. Just as we need to be born again as a new creation, a new life spiritually, the solution is not fixing the old, but becoming something brand new to replace the old heart with a new heart that craves new things instead of craving the things that lead to sin and death. That's why Paul writes this in Romans 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're celebrating at Advent at this time of year, that Jesus came to give us new everlasting life. Jesus came to give us hope where we had no hope, to solve a problem we could not solve to raise us from death to life. He didn't come to fix us. He came to remake us, to make us something new, something eternal, a new heart, a new life, a new destiny, a new future. He came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. All of it, all of it. He's the only one who can say to us, you're free from the law. I've taken care of it for you. You're free from it. He gave us new hope. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The first opportunity I always want to give is for anybody who might be here today and you would say, you know, I've never received that new hope. I've never received it. Maybe you have been looking for the traditions, the actions, the good works, the good things you could do that would make you good enough. But you have come to realize through what God says in his word, through what his Holy Spirit is saying to you right now, you've come to realize that there's nothing you could ever do to fix what's broken inside of you. You need Jesus to come in and give you a new heart and a new life. If you want to make that decision for the first time today, if you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time today, welcome him into your life as your Lord, as the one who saves you. And before you leave today, you need to do two things. You need to mark that on the back of your connection card so we know about it. And you need to come and let me know. I just want to give you some gifts that are going to help get you going in your walk with God. Don't leave without doing that. For the rest of us, my prayer is just that we would be free from tradition, from the burden of traditions or from placing our hope in traditions. And we would realize the freedom we have in God through what he's given us in his word, that his word would be the standard in everything. And then I pray for all of us. Father, would you make us people who worship with honesty, Lord God? We don't want to fall unintentionally into the pattern of thinking, man, if I'm growing in my relationship with God, then I have to look like I've always got it all together on the surface. May we be people who worship in honesty in a way that moves your heart. Just as this woman May we come to you in honesty, not concerned about the right words, the right posture, the right formula, 
but simply acknowledging that you are God, worshiping you. You are powerful. You love us. You can do anything. Worshiping you and asking you for help where we need it. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for every single one of us that you would illuminate in our mind and in our spirit anything, any area of our lives, any situation, any relationship where you are just waiting for us to ask you for help. And would you help us to be honest enough and desperate enough for you to do that? Shine a light on those things in our lives, Lord God. Just continue to pray and be still before the Lord. In a few moments, I'm going to ask us to stand and sing and worship. You're free to continue praying, to kneel, to stand, to sit and pray, whatever you want to do. This is a time for you and God to do business.